If you uh, happen to have a Bible with you this morning, would you open it up to Acts chapter 2? And if you didn't bring one with you, they're in the racks there in the, in the pew in front of you. Uh, you can find your way to page 910 if you're not familiar with the book of Acts. That'll help you to get there. Page 910 in the pew Bible or in your own Bible, Acts chapter 2. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, we have Bibles here for you this morning as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So when you leave this morning, you'll find on the table in the back some Bibles that are, some are wrapped and some are unwrapped. You're free to take one of those with you. Or if you know of someone that needs a Bible, take one with you and give it to them as a gift. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word. I intend to be very, very clear and precise with you this morning. I believe that you have honored us with your time. It could have been many different places on a beautiful morning like this, but you chose to be here. And I'm going to return that honor by being very clear about what I believe God wants you to hear. And before we get into that, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. So would you bow your head? Father, I recognize we come in here with the potential for many distractions, things that we've left behind us to be here and things that are ahead of us yet today. And yet in, in the midst of that potential for distraction, God, I ask that you would help us to focus. We've done our best with that through song, and now we ask that you would help us to focus on your word and what you would have to say to us, because I, I'm confident that you want to speak to each person individually here today. So we would ask through the power of your Holy Spirit who rules over this auditorium, that you would come alongside us and guide us and show us what you want us to hear. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. In, in order to get into Acts chapter 2, I need to ask you to step mentally with me back to the first century. Acts chapter 2 has a specific beginning point because Peter is explaining to a large group of people what has happened with Jesus. It starts out this way. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put to death. We know that's what happened on Friday. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God should make you do some theological hurdles. That, that, that was all about God doing this, orchestrating this, but it was godless men that carried it out. Well, that's the crucifixion. What about immediately after the crucifixion? Well, in order to see that, we need to look on the screen at John 19.39. It says, They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. There, because of the Jewish day of preparation, no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there, God in a graveyard. Can you imagine a greater contrast in terms? The Son of God laying in a cemetery. It seems so inappropriate. It's a really difficult overtone. And yet alongside that is this paradox. He's guarded by men that he created. He's wrapped in chains of linens, buried deep in a tomb. I'm so glad it doesn't stop there. How about you? That that is not the end. That's what we want to explore this morning. We understand according to Acts 2.24, it says this, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. If you received the notes when you came in this morning, on the back side of your notes is a couple of Greek words 
this one agony is an important one for you to understand because especially women here this morning, if you've given birth to children, you understand the meaning of agony in a different way than what men do. This Greek word agony is literally taken from the concept of women giving birth to children. Some women say that they feel like they've passed through the valley of the shadow of death when they've given birth. Well, the word here literally means birth pangs. It was always associated in the first century with a woman who's in labor. But like the pain of a woman in labor, the pain of death for Jesus was temporary. And it was about to yield something glorious. So God did indeed put an end to the agony. And the result was the brand new glorious arrival of Jesus. So what we understand was what was perceived to be a tomb was in reality a womb. If you could take that analogy to that point and understand what was perceived to bury Jesus actually was a brand new beginning for us. So this tomb which encased Him and the guards watching over Him and these chains of linen that are binding Him, they discovered something that very morning. They were witness to the fact it is impossible to hold Jesus down. That's what we celebrate this morning. Those chains, those men, that tomb became witness to the resurrection. Now, fast forward with me a couple weeks. That's the resurrection. Acts chapter 2 picks up at Peter and the disciples standing before a crowd. Strange events are unfolding. They hear the sound of what they describe as a rushing wind. They can't explain it. People in the city begin hearing it. It sounds like a tornado, but there's no tornado. They hear this rushing, but yet it's a blue sky. So first 10, and then 20, and then 50, and then 100, then 200, then 500, then 1,000 people. Then thousands of people pour into the city square. And they're wondering, what is this strange occurrence? And Peter takes this moment this midstream opportunity to speak to this crowd that's gathered. And in the midst of his speaking to them, we pick up in Acts chapter 2, and it says this in verse 32. This is Peter speaking. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. There's two things going on there. First of all, he says, Jesus was resurrected. And he says, I was a witness. I'm going to come back to the witness component in just a minute. But I want you to understand this morning, maybe this is the first time you've heard this, but the resurrection is the cornerstone of everything that we hope in. It is the foundation. There would be no Christianity if there were no resurrection. There would be no possibility. It's so foundational that anyone who denies it cannot be a true Christian because there's no hope in a dead Jesus There's no power in a dead Jesus. A person who believes in a Jesus still in the grave believes in a powerless Jesus. So if Jesus did not rise, you've got no justification before God. As a matter of fact, Paul spoke to this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said it this way, if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. It goes on in verse 19 and says it even harsher than that. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's biblical code for loser. Really. (laughs) You're losers. You got nothing. If Jesus wasn't actually resurrected, you got nothing. If you take away the resurrection,
Christianity in one blow. So I ask you a question this morning. Did God indeed end the agony of death? Did he put an end to it and raise Jesus? Do you believe it? Acts 2.24 says this, God raised him up again since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So if you'll use this analogy again, God delivered Jesus. God delivered Jesus and it was impossible for him to be held because of that. So here's what we know. In one moment, a lifeless, cold body laying on a slab of stone, engulfed in death, and with a roar of an earthquake which shook the very gates of hell, the Son of God's chest heaved, and the Lord of lords and King of kings came bursting forth. Pause. Hit the pause button for just a moment, because that's the resurrection. Go to Sunday afternoon. News traveled very, very fast in Jerusalem. People on the streets chattered about this Jesus because he was the most popular person in the country. Everyone heard of Jesus, and they knew about the arrest. They knew about the trial and the crucifixion. And now it's two days later, and word on the street is there's an official announcement from the government. And the government is saying, People of Israel, hear this. The followers of Jesus have stolen his body just to make it appear as though he was risen from the dead. That's where Acts chapter 2 picks up. Peter's setting the record straight. He's beginning to let everyone know what really happened. And he says, I was there. I was a witness. And he offers evidence of the resurrection. So let me give you just an excerpt from what he's sharing with them. It comes from Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. See, they knew him as a real person. They knew that he was from the town nearby. It'd be like us being in Hazlitt this morning and saying, Jesus is in East Lansing. Nazareth was a familiar town. It wasn't that far away. They watched him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They knew of the miracles. That's why he says in verse 23, this Jesus whom you knew, whom God attested through miracles, this one through the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God was handed over to godless men to be crucified. In other words, this Jesus who came as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes was ultimately here to be wrapped in grave clothes. So for this reason, Jesus came. He came so that he could die. It was the foreknowledge of God. It was the predetermined plan that that would happen. Many people stop right there. Religions around the world recognize and respect Jesus, the man, the historical figure. They believe in the crucifixion. They believe that he died and went into the tomb. And 82% of Americans believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. But many people never stop to think, what are the implications of his death and the resurrection? Why is it important to me in 2014? How does it affect my life today? Well, what I want you to notice, it was important to the people in the first century just like it is to you this morning. So Peter doesn't stop there. 
He pushes through in Acts chapter 2, and he goes on to explain the resurrection and why it happened and had to happen. But what I really want to focus on is his statement in verse 32. Acts 2.32, we are all witnesses. He was there because he saw the evidence. Well, let me show you what the word witness means. It's in your notes this morning, but I want you to see it on the screen as well. This word, marturos, a Greek word, it's where we get the word martyr from. This is what it means because we think of the word martyr as associated with somebody who dies for a cause. Uh, A martuos is someone who actually sees the evidence, evaluates the evidence, and gives witness based on the evidence that they see. So it's used 29 times in the New Testament. I understand that in this story, there's three forms of witnesses here. Individuals who have seen the evidence evaluate the evidence and have to determine what they're going to do with this evidence. So the three forms I want to look at with you very briefly are the silent witness and the unwilling witness and the willing witness. And and the silent witness, I believe, is the linens and the empty tomb and the stone that's been rolled away and even the earthquake that took place and the fulfillment of Scripture. The unwilling witness, those are the hostile ones. They see the evidence, but they deny it. They don't want it to be real. And then the willing witness become the followers of Jesus Christ. Here's the thought behind all this. Every one of us this morning are witnesses. We couldn't be physically there in the first century, but the evidence is presented to us, and we have to decide on which side we land. Am I a willing witness or an unwilling witness? And what am I going to do with it as a result of that? So which one are you? That might depend this morning on which Jesus you're looking for. Let me help you with that. We're going to use the women who came to the tombstone as an example. They came to see Jesus. They came to see the grave. They came with an objective in mind. Now understand that prior to the resurrection, the followers of Jesus did not believe. They did not believe that He was going to be resurrected from the dead. They believed that he was a prophet sent from God and that he was powerful and mighty and they even declared him the son of God. But they had to be convinced of the resurrection. They did not believe. So the women coming to the graveyard, we'll use as our first example. I've tried to imagine what it would have been like to be with that group that morning. They come in the dark, we're told. You ever gone to a cemetery at nighttime? Kind of a creepy place. Okay, We'll just say that right up front. So these women are coming in the dark. They're coming into a cemetery with an objective on their mind, and they've got some weight that they're carrying. They're carrying grief. They're carrying anguish. Disappointment. All their hope has gone. They've seen Jesus stabbed. They watched a Roman soldier literally thrust a spear through his ribcage, penetrating his heart. Scripture gives us a medical definition of what actually happened when water and blood gushed out together. They saw him whipped, beaten, beard ripped from his face. They saw the evidence because they watched him be buried. They saw the linen wrappings go all the way around his body, just like a mummy. And they knew that he went into the tomb. So it's pre-dawn Sunday morning, and they anticipate a lifeless buried body. They think they're coming to a grave, not an empty grave. My understanding of God after my years of walking with Him is that He has the capacity to surprise me. 
He has the capacity to surprise you. It's just that you don't want it to happen in a cemetery. It's not the place you really want to be surprised. But yet, God surprised them in a cemetery. No sooner do the women reach the tomb than they step onto holy ground. And according to God's word, the ground begins to shake. And there's a violent trembling that takes place. And the terrain is displaced. Why? Because an angel is showing up. Let me pick it up midstream with you in Matthew 28. It says that the angel begins talking to the women. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. See, they've come for dead Jesus. They came for the crucified Jesus. I know what you're looking for. You're looking for the crucified Jesus. You're not going to find dead Jesus here. See, they never expected to encounter the God of wonders. And the women can't speak. They're traumatized. So the angel responds for them. If you notice when you look at the passage, you'll see they never ask a question. The angel begins asking the question on their behalf. I know what you're looking for. I know while you're here. Crucified Jesus is not here. Why, church? Because in a dead Jesus, there's no hope, is there? It's not possible. Do you come here today like these women with some disappointment in your life? With maybe a loss of hope? Is there some grief that you're carrying? And and maybe everything you put your trust in is gone and you've got some serious burdens. My question for you is, is it possible that you could encounter the God of wonders this morning? That you could have the same experience that they did? Here's what I know to be one of the greatest verses in the Bible, and I believe it to be the key to unlocking your personal experience with God. The angel said this in verse 6, He is not here, for He has risen, just as He said. You see what's going on there, church. He's not been defeated in death, so don't look for a dead Jesus. Don't look to a powerless Jesus. Look at the Lord of life. And do you notice what He needs to remind them of? It's what he said was going to happen. Let me remind you, just as he said. See, you're not looking at a surprise Jesus. Jesus didn't wake up in the tomb that morning and think, wow, how am I going to get out of here? (laughs) It was as he said. He planned this. Why is that important to you? Because our God is a God of promises. And our God cannot lie. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. So when he says, I forgive you of your sins... He means it. When he says, I will take you to eternity with me one day, he means it. This sure promise that he has made to you is the same power that's evidenced in your life. The power that raised him is evidenced in your life by the power that he has to forgive you. The same power that raised him will also one day raise you if you'll accept it. And you can stand before your God justified. See, these men and women, they became willing witnesses. Why? They heard the evidence. They saw it before them. They accepted it, and they received it, and they spoke openly about it. A true martyros. They allowed the truth of what they experienced to radically change the trajectory of their life. You come in here this morning perhaps with a, a sense of, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. 
I've talked to people who are in their 70s that feel that way, who find, I don't know what my purpose is. I want to tell you, if you encounter Jesus Christ, He will give you a trajectory like none other. He will give you purpose and meaning for your life. That's the willing witness. Let's go to the silent witness. I find it fascinating. The the silent witness is really these linens and this empty grave and this stone that's been rolled away and even the force of nature. Let let me take you to Matthew 28, verse 2. It says this, And behold, a severe earthquake, a megas seismos. You knew I'd get the word megas in there somehow, didn't you? If you're not new to New Hope, you know Megas is very familiar here. It's just, mm, it's a good word. <laughs> a mega seismos had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. So this angel in blazing hot white descends fresh from the presence of the living God. He's been in the Shekinah glory, and he's still reflecting the Shekinah glory. And it's so brilliant that it strikes these individuals with the brilliance to the degree that they say it was like It was like lightning. Have you ever looked at lightning before? It'll leave spots in front of your eyes. Well, that's just an angel. How bright is our God? These individuals are looking at this one who is fresh from the presence of God, and it's like an electrified being, clothed in clothing as white as snow. And what had taken the power and might of the soldiers of Rome to move into place with military strength is blown open in a moment. Why? Because of the presence of God. Now let's just be very, very clear. The angel does not need to move the stone to let Jesus out. Our God is not held in by the rocks that He spoke into existence. You may as well try to put handcuffs on Superman as to keep Jesus inside a tomb. It's not possible. These linen chains that are wrapped through him and around him, he passed right through. The evidence of the individuals who went to the tomb said they saw the linen still wrapped in place. The body just passed right through it. Well, he didn't need to be removed from the linens and he didn't need to be removed from the the grave because he's not held by death church or anything. He's not held back by any obstacle in your life. Scripture says this, Acts 2.24, it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So you might be thinking, so why the tomb then? Why roll the stone away? Why point out the linens? Why the descent of the angel? Because of who we are. My human nature is to be a skeptic. I'll bet you're similar. It was true of the disciples of Jesus, and I'm talking about the big 11. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Mark. Those individuals who followed Jesus were skeptical. They couldn't believe that this could possibly happen. It was too fantastic. So when the women go back and report to the men what had just happened, look at their reaction, Luke 24, 11. These words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings by themselves. See, Peter had to check it out. He had to have visible evidence to see 
this evidence, the witness. In decisive terms, this empty tomb is a witness to you. The stone is taken away. The empty linens still in place, there for God to give evidence. Here's what he's giving evidence of this morning. Of his great love for you. An empty tomb to prove that my Savior lives. Sounds like the lyrics to a song, doesn't it? Only if you're over 40. If you've got an old person sitting next to you, ask him what that means. Bill Gaither wrote a song, My Savior Lives. That's, that's where it comes from. An empty tomb to scream truth. Jesus is not here. So you've got the, the willing witness. You've got the silent witness. Let's go to the unwilling witness. What in legal terms today might be considered a hostile witness in which a judge might say to an attorney, I I give you permission to interrogate this person as a hostile witness. Why do they use that term today, a hostile witness? It's someone who's got the information. They're just not willing to represent it. So in order to look at this unwilling witness, we've got to start with some of the evidence that comes prior to Easter morning. As a matter of fact, how the leaders of Israel looked at Jesus themselves prior to the resurrection. It says this in John eleven forty seven. Therefore, the chief priests, this is the leaders of Israel, and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What's going on? They want to hold on to their security. They want their lifestyle protected. They're the leaders. They don't want their nation and their power and their place taken away. And Jesus is asking too much. So what are they doing? They want to put out the wanted posters. They want everyone to know that Jesus is wanted. That's why they're saying, what are we doing? Let's not mess around anymore. Let's go after this guy. Because he cost too much for us. So jump forward to Thursday night. Jesus is arrested and they put him on trial. Look with me at the trial. It comes from Mark 14, 61. The high priest was questioning him, Jesus, and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of Marturos? See, the word witness occurs over and over and over again in the New Testament, 29 times. What further need do we have? We are our own witnesses. We have the evidence. We've seen everything necessary. And if we react violently enough, and if we shout loudly enough, and if we reject him firmly enough, maybe Jesus will just go away. And he won't be a force in our life anymore. You might be thinking right now, Mark, just lighten up a little bit. I mean, these guys didn't see resurrection morning. Cut them some slack. They didn't get to see Easter yet. Well, what's their reaction to Easter? What's their reaction to the resurrection experience? Let's look at our friends, the guards, again and see how they responded. Look with me at Matthew 28 again. It says in verse 4, The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men, meaning they fainted. You would too. They've they've got post-traumatic angel disorder. This is, wow, this bright lightning. They've never seen anything like this, and they collapse. They're awestruck and traumatized. 
And so they're paralyzed. Suppose to keep the body of Jesus from leaving the tomb. Imagine if you'd been given that job assignment. Your job assignment is to keep Jesus from rising on Easter morning. I mean, are you set up for failure or what? These guys got a bad job assignment. What, what do they do with their encounter? God's Word tells us. This was their response. The women left. The women left the tomb. They went back to tell the disciples what they saw. And it says this in Matthew 28, 11. Now, while they were on their way, meaning the women, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. See, it's a bribe. They're buying them off. Meaning if we spend just enough money, maybe this Jesus thing will not be significant in our life. We'll dump enough money into this situation and we won't have to deal with it. Spend enough that I don't have to face the reality of who Jesus is. This is the second part. Matthew 28, 13 says this, And they said to them, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. This brings us full circle all the way back around to Peter. Finds himself with this massive crowd of people. Acts chapter 2. And he has to give a defense and make an explanation for why they've heard what they've heard. I stand before you asking you the same thing that Peter had to stand and ask them that particular morning. Where are you on this issue? You've seen the evidence. What do you believe? There's a statement that's very common in our world today, among our generation, and it sounds like this. It, It makes no difference what you believe just as long as you live a good life. Have you heard that? A few of you? I think most of you have probably heard it. It makes no difference what you believe, just as long as you live right. I want you to hear me. That is a statement of utter confusion or wishful thinking, and I'm not sure which. It absolutely does make a difference what you believe because what you believe determines your action. So what you believe about God really determines what you're going to do next. If you believe in the resurrection, you're going to respond differently than if you don't believe in it. You don't believe in the resurrection, you think it's of no effect, then the execution of Jesus was nothing more than the murder of a fraud. mounted to nothing, a dead guy who said he was God. But if you believe, what you believe about God really is going to determine how you live. Whether or not you're going to be a martyros, a witness who's examined the evidence is willing to speak about it. So are you in the category of a willing witness this morning? Is that where you find yourself? Ultimately, if you are, this is what you've got to conclude. Does the resurrection of Jesus impact my life? In 2014, the way that I live day to day, does it have an impact in my life? Because this is a moment that everything else hinges on. How you respond to that question will affect your destiny. How the disciples responded to it completely affected their future. Truth, Jesus Christ did die for your sins. But that's only half the truth. Don't leave Him on the cross. The other half of the truth is that He was resurrected and the resurrection cannot be omitted. 
He either did rise or he did not. There is no middle ground. You can't find a gray area because if Jesus did not rise, church, you got the L on your forehead. Loser. I mean, we might as well be out on the golf course this morning. Why be here? But if he did rise, we have good reason to be a martyros. So how does it affect your life? Every person in the early church was bold and willing to tell everyone they knew about the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it must have been crucially important for people to understand the reality of the resurrection. Here's why. With a dead Jesus over whom death triumphed, your justification before a holy God is null and void. You have no hope when you die. You can't possibly pay for enough children to go to an orphanage or be purchased out of an orphanage. You can't possibly help enough old ladies across the street. You can't possibly give away enough money to earn your way to stand before a holy God who says, I am that I am. And sin cannot stand in my presence. So how does this impact your life? His resurrection is the proof of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. See, this resurrection is really the ultimate witness. God is the ultimate witness, the ultimate martyros, that what Jesus did was received by Him. Let me back that up from Scripture. Romans 1.4 He was declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. Who raised Him? We already saw Peter's argument. God the Father raised him from the dead. Would God raise him if he was not worthy? Would God raise him if his death meant nothing? But he was raised with power, proving that he is the Son of God. So if he had not been risen, you'd still be in your sins. Here's how I want to close this morning, and I'm going to state this as clearly as I possibly can. It's not only what I believe, it's what I know that I know, that I know to be true. Truth number one, he lived. The preponderance of the evidence is overwhelming. He breathed, he walked, he talked among us. And according to Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son for a specific purpose. And this is the tip of the spear, truth number two. In God's plan, the tip of the spear is that He not only walked among us, that He came to die for us willingly. It says this in Hebrews 9.26, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Because in God's economy, a payment is required. If you die today in your sins and you don't have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to stand behind, before God on your own with no justification. Jesus died that you would have justification. That your sins would be removed. And He did something for you very specific when He died for you. He took something from Satan. I want you to see this because this is critical how that impacts your life today. Hebrews 2.14 Through death, He rendered powerless Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. See, Satan really wears false teeth, church. He's got dentures. Jesus took his bite from him. 
He has no capacity for those who name the name of Jesus. He doesn't own the power of death anymore. Jesus took it from him and rendered it powerless. That's truth number one and truth number two. Here's truth number three. He lives again. He lives again. And the disciples didn't even understand that he had to live again. But we understand that now because we have his complete word. It says this in John 20, verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. See, death was powerless to keep him. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what John wrote. Look with me at this. John eleven twenty five: 25, the resurrection and the life. Who said that? It's okay, shout it out. It's the Jesus answer. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus said that about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Here's what you need to leave knowing this morning. God intends for you to be with Him for all eternity. That is His plan, His desire, and His hope. He is not willing that any would perish. Like I told you earlier, 82% of Americans believe that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead. They don't, most people don't struggle with that information. What most people struggle with is the thought that Jesus came for them. Privately, internally, most people, two in the morning conversations with themselves, really struggle with the thought that Jesus died for their sin. Most people work really hard thinking, I've got to make God happy with me. So I'll, I'll show up in church. If I go to church often enough, maybe God will really like me. God loves you. It's not how often you do things to please God. Jesus already was the ultimate pleasing of God. You come to God the Father through the blood of Jesus, not on the basis of your own works. You don't have to work for it. That's why it's called grace. But here's the second thing people struggle with. And it usually sounds like this. Mark, if you knew the degree of garbage I've got in my life, if you know the amount of crap that I'm carrying with me every day, you'd feel like I do too. Satan whispers that in your ear. You're not worthy. He'll never forgive you. And that haunting conversation plays over and over and over in people's minds. It's not true. It's a lie. God will forgive you. You cannot out-sin God. The degree of his forgiveness is so great that God will meet you if you will only turn to him. He will not turn away from you. Scripture says this in John 6.37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Can God lie, church? You need to say that a little louder. Can God lie? No. That means that's true. If you come to him, he will receive you. And according to what I know in God's word, he will separate your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. That's not an incomplete statement, though. He will separate his, your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember your sins no more. How cool is that? He's not dependent upon you, except for the fact that you have to come to him. So if you're in that place this morning where you want to receive Jesus, you have a couple things you need to do. You need to first confess to him privately in your seat right where you're at. You can do this quietly. 
Confess to him that you need his forgiveness. Just tell him you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And by the way, most people know that they're sinners. It's not news to us. And I'm here to tell you, it's not news to God either. It's not like, whoa, you're a sinner? That's not it. He'll say, I know. That's why I sent my son. Come to the Father and say, I know. I know now. I know that there's forgiveness in you. See, God is able to handle all the things that weigh you down when you came in this morning. Everything that consumes your mind. And he's going to separate it and remove that sin from you so that when you stand before him, you stand justified. You you may not feel like it. You may even feel guilt for the things that you've done in the past. But under the authority of God's word, Jesus was resurrected as confirmation that God received his sacrifice on your behalf. I'm going to tell you just how to pray very briefly. If that's you this morning and you want to receive Jesus Christ into your life, it sounds just like this. Father, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Will you forgive me of my sins? That will put you on a path to a brand new beginning that identifies you with Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you just to bow with me right now. Everybody in the auditorium, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, would you pray for those in the auditorium and those that were here this weekend? To whom this is new news, would you pray with me? Very simply, this is what it can sound like for you. Heavenly Father, I come before you recognizing I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and that Jesus is that one. Will you forgive me of my sins and bring me into eternity with you? Amen. That's a much more complicated prayer than even the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross next to Jesus said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? How did Jesus respond to him? I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. It's that simple to turn your life over to Jesus. Now, if you're a person who believes in Jesus and you're a follower of Christ, or maybe you just now identified with him, start today in 2014, and I'm speaking to the church of Jesus Christ, be a martyros, be a witness. You have what the world needs to hear. You know the way to the King of Kings. Be a witness and show the power of his grace in your life. You're a living witness of the power of transformation. That's why we long to look more like Jesus so that people will look and say, I I see that person, and man, they remind me of something totally different than the rest of the world. That person looks like Jesus. I see a whole lot of people in this auditorium this morning who look like Jesus. You came here of your own free will to study God's Word. I'm going to pray God's blessing on you right now. Would you join me in that? And then I'll send you out. Heavenly Father, thank you for Easter Sunday. Thank you for the resurrection of the King. That we can come together as a group of people and celebrate this morning for a good reason. That we serve a risen Savior. Father, I ask that you would send your church out today with your blessing upon them. Thank you for their time being here to know more about you. They're dedicating themselves to to your purposes. To study your word. So I pray that your blessing would rest on them as they go out the doors of this auditorium and into a hungry world. Make them bold, Father.
In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day, New Hope.